Well, if you want to find your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 17, that's where we're going to be in these next few weeks. And the Christmas season is here. You probably have got a few hints that it's coming. I want you to know that just even walking into the church early this morning, it's like, wow, and seeing this, I just, this is like my favorite time of the year. And I want you to know that Americans celebrate Christmas. In fact, there was a LifeWay research study that was done at the end of last year, and they found that 91% of Americans celebrate Christmas. And I'm like, yeah, it's pretty evident. I mean, everywhere you go, music, you go to the store. I mean, it's, it's all around, right? You know that. Many people are going to spend a lot of money and gifts and going to parties, and there's a lot of celebration that's going on. And then, of course, um, in this study, though, they found some things that I thought were rather interesting. For instance... Three out of four Americans believe that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. I mean, like, not too bad. You've been singing the song for a while. You got a few Bibles, but that's pretty good. 75% of Americans actually think that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It even gets better. Get this. They found that 80% of the people think that Jesus is the Son of God. I was actually surprised by that. But this is where then the wheels start coming off the cart, okay? So they found that less than half, actually 41%, of Americans believe that Jesus existed prior to being born that first Christmas. Americans are all about celebrating Christmas and spending a lot of money and trying to redefine the season, but very few of them have really any understanding of who Jesus is and what Christmas is really all about. They're celebrating, and every single person has a perspective on Christmas. But what we really need is to understand the real reason. What is God's perspective on Christmas? And that's what we are endeavoring to do this Christmas season. We are going to embark on a study of a chapter in the Bible that is rarely ever associated with Christmas. In fact, I'm pretty sure you have never heard what we're about to study in these next few weeks and its relationship to Christmas, it's all found in John chapter 17. And you're probably familiar with like, hey, John 17, that, that's, that's a prayer. Like Jesus is praying to the Father. In fact, it, it happens like right before he goes to the cross. And yet when you look at John chapter 17, you find that six different times Jesus references that he was sent. It emphasizes the very heart of Christmas, that Jesus was sent to the world. But if you want to understand why and what Christmas is all about from God's perspective, you're going to find it recorded in John chapter 17. Now, in the prior chapters, in like chapter beginning in chapter 13, all the way through 16, it's known as the upper room discourse. Here, Jesus is giving final instruction to his disciples, telling them of the Holy Spirit, but it ends on a really solemn, staggering note in John chapter 16, verse 33, when Jesus says this, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace in the world. You have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. God wants his people, his disciples, to have his peace. But know this, that peace is going to be tested because this world is full of tribulation. And I want you to know that for those first disciples that heard those words, that in the world you're going to have tribulation, you got to think they were wondering what is really in store for us. What is happening? Where is Jesus going? What is he saying? What does this all mean? 
And then we don't know where exactly this took place, but Jesus gives a prayer. It is kind of like the apex of the Gospel of John, where we actually have a fully recorded prayer of what Jesus speaks to the Father right before his betrayal and going to the cross. You're going to find that as we go through John chapter 17, that Jesus' prayer is like really different than how we pray. But you're also going to find Christmas from God's perspective. And so this prayer is known as the uh, high priestly prayer. But really, it's the Lord's prayer. It is what Jesus discusses and finds most important right before he goes to the cross. And one thing is sure, that as you read John 17, Jesus is not a victim. He's a victor. He's the overcomer. So let's take a look at it, and then I just want to highlight some important things that we can learn about Christmas from God's perspective by reading, beginning in John 17, verse 1. Now Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. If you want to know the purpose of the coming of Christ, the first thing I want to highlight here from verse 1 is this. It's to bring God great glory by accomplishing salvation through his son. So take a look here at verse 1. Jesus spoke these things. We're not sure exactly where Jesus is at. Uh, it is likely that he has left the upper room. Uh, perhaps he's on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane and he utters this prayer as he's walking. Maybe they're at the courtyard or even on the Temple Mount itself where Jesus then prays and allows his disciples to listen in. There is no prayer that's fully of, that Jesus gave fully that is recorded in Scripture except this one. It's like we're on holy ground when we open our Bibles to this page. And notice what he says in verse 1. He spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, suggesting that they again are outside. And this is a common posture of prayer to stand and to lift your gaze up to heaven. And Jesus then begins to pray. And he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. He begins by saying, the hour has come. So when you read the Gospel of John, you will find that five different times it is said, or Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. He's referring to this hour. What is the hour? It's the hour of his death. By crucifixion, it is the hour of his burial, it's the hour of his resurrection and ascension. It is for this purpose that Jesus came. It is for this hour. It's like everything focuses on these events, and he refers to it as the hour. And I want you to know that Christmas is really the gateway to the cross. Oftentimes, we, we don't really associate Christmas so much with the cross, but God does. He sees that everything about Christmas really finds its focal point 
on the cross. And he says, now is the time to glorify you. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. To glorify is to emphasize the majesty of God. So to glorify God is to exalt and extol the magnificence, the excellence, the character and nature of God. You do that through your words and your works. And that's what Jesus is saying. The hour has come for me to glorify you. And would you glorify the Son so that I, he's saying, the Son may glorify you. Now, when he talks about this, this hour, everything focuses on it. For instance, it is the hour, it's the apex of this unfolding drama. It's the hour in which Jesus will cancel the certificate of debt. All of the sin that is hostile to us, it's at this hour that Jesus will be the perfect penalty and pay the perfect price for our sins. It is this hour in which the Old Testament prophecies, speaking of a Messiah and all their great definition of a humble and suffering servant and one who will actually have our iniquities poured out upon him, who will suffer on our behalf. It is the one in which the chastening of our well-being fell upon him. It's, it's this hour. All the Old Testament prophecies are, find their fulfillment, the ones that are messianic, they find their fulfillment in Christ. And many of them specifically at this hour. It's this hour in which the shadows of the Old Testament sacrifices find their fulfillment when Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, actually becomes the one perfect sacrifice for our sins. Just like, remember John the Baptist, when he pointed out to Jesus, and he pointed to him and said, John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of God of the world. And this all happens when? At this hour. And really what Jesus is praying is a reversal of the emptying that took place. If you want to understand Christmas from God's perspective, you have to understand that Jesus is the eternal son of God. Yeah, there are a lot of Americans that are really confused about this and they don't really know who Jesus is. But to know who God is, he's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They are eternal Three in one. And the eternal son of God entered into humanity. It's referred to as the incarnation. But really, it is a coming down. It is ultimate humility. That's what it is. And it's referred to as the doctrine of kenosis, okay? So that might be a new word for you, Greek word, kenosis. It means emptying. And what Jesus did when he entered into humanity, conceived by the working of the Holy Spirit, born as a baby, grew up just like any other baby and yet was without sin, grew up into manhood, and then had his ministry, I want you to know that it was utter humility. That the eternal Son of God would actually enter into humanity, force himself within a human body. And so you see this, like in Philippians 2, like Lorna just read for us in the scripture reading. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. That's the kenosis. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant or a slave, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death 
on a cross. So when we talk about this emptying, it's that Jesus temporarily laid aside the exercise of his divine attributes and he became a man, a God-man, and in utter humility, he actually became a slave, a servant. And friends, that is the reality of Christmas. Christmas is really a traveling down. We're so, you know, kind of focused on redefining it, just thinking about gifts. Um, I need you to understand that Christmas really is about the utter humility of the eternal Son of God entering into humanity. I mean, we actually sing about it, like, in some of our Christmas songs. Now, I know it's really popular to, like, you know, find Christmas songs about, like, hey, I got a new boyfriend this Christmas, you know, those kind of songs. I'm going to try to, like, let's move past that. Like, maybe, like, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Like, you like, yeah, I've heard of it. But, like, those are some amazing words. Like, for instance, in that song, it says, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. That's what Christmas is really about. It's like, when you, when you come to Christmas... Christmas is kind of like one of those like really expensive fireworks, you know, like the kind that like the city sets off on like the 4th of July or like, you know, in Texas, we can go and buy some pretty amazing fireworks, right? And you know how it works. You want to be careful, right? But it's got that long fuse, right? And you light that fuse and and you see some sparks and you know something's coming, right? And then sure enough, all of a sudden it gets to the firework itself and there's like, boom, and it shoots up, right? And you see some sparkling... But you know something big is about to come, and then all of a sudden, right? Explosion. And there's lights everywhere, and it's like, oh, that's so cool. That's the hour. And that's what Jesus is speaking about. The hour is the glorious purpose, and it's the purpose of the coming of Christ so that the God would receive great glory by accomplishing salvation through his Son. But let me show you something else that we learn from this text about the true meaning of Christmas, the real reason. The coming of Christ is to bring God great glory by giving eternal life to his son. Take a look at this. If you've got a pencil, you might want to underline some of these verses because let me show you what eternal life and Christmas is really all about. He says, verse 2, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. So who has authority over all flesh or over all humanity? Jesus does. In fact, God creates the heavens and the earth and people, humanity. People are made in God's image and the Father does it through the Son. To create means to have authority to own. And so who has all authority? Jesus does. In fact, Jesus says this uh, shortly before he ascends to the Father. Remember Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20? He gives the Great Commission, but before that, he reinforces what we find him praying about right here. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am the absolute supreme one, the ruler of the universe, the king of kings. You know, frankly, our problem is that our perspective of God is way too small. We're focusing on Jesus, uh, meek and mild, little baby in the manger. And I want you to know that, like, society, that's fine. You want to celebrate births? Births are exciting. Babies are cute. Sure, you want to do that? No problem there. You need to understand that that baby is actually the eternal son of God 
who's existed from all eternity, and he has absolute all authority. And he is going to demonstrate that time and time again, and he is going to accomplish the hour, the apex of all history, when he becomes the perfect sacrifice for sins. And so he says, all authority over all flesh has been given to me, and notice what he gives. This is really amazing here. He says, all authority over all flesh, verse 2, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Really interesting, when you study John 17, 17 different times he uses a form of to give. And here we see it here. But look at this. To all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. What Jesus is praying about is the reality that the Father has given the gift of a redeemed humanity to his Son. We are pretty good at understanding, like, yes, Jesus is the gift, right? John 3.16, we, we get that. You want to receive the gift. But do you know that actually Christmas, from God's perspective, is the Father giving a redeemed humanity to the Son, and this transaction this is initiated before the foundation of the world. Think of it. You and I, who know Jesus, we are the Father's gift to the Son. I'm like, ah, are you kidding me, right? But make no mistake about it. This is the amazing, awesome gift that the Father has given his people to his Son and the Son, as a demonstration of his love, is the one who will provide redemption for the very gift that God has given him. I, I tell you, it's, it's kind of like makes your mind snap. And it's not just a judicial thing like, well, Jesus, he just kind of fulfilled the, right, the law, and then he just died on a cross. Yes, it is absolute justice. But at the same time, it is 100% complete, eternal love on display. It's an act and expression of love, and it's so that we will receive eternal life. Do you see that in verse 2? You trust in Christ, you receive eternal life, but this is all part of God's plan where you're a gift from the Father to the Son, and you receive eternal life. Now, in one sense, everybody lives for eternity. Do you know that? Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, whether you believe in Jesus or you have nothing to do with him, guess what? You're going to live forever. The question is, where? Are you going to trust and know Jesus as Savior or face him as judge? But you will exist either in his presence, enjoying him forever, or away from his presence because you rejected him in this life. But to those who are his own, the ones that the Father gave the Son, here we have again this doctrine of election and predestination and where Jesus is the one who actually redeems those who believe in him. He gives them eternal life. And then if you want to see, like, well, what is all entailed with eternal life? Well, take a look at what he says in verse 3. I've got this underlined in my Bible because this is actually at the very heart of Christmas. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have Ah, there it is. You have sent. This is why he came. So that we will know the one true God. That is directly out of the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. There is but one God, right? God is one. And the only way to know him, to know God the Father, 
is to know God the Son, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. If you really want relationship with God, the only way that is possible is if you are truly trusting and have received the Son. And, like, this is the gospel message. For instance, like Peter, Acts chapter 4, verse 12, he gets up and he declares this. This is the message. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. You want forgiveness of sins, you want salvation, you want eternity with God, and you really want to know God personally, there is only one way that's possible. That's by receiving and trusting in Jesus, that you may know him. You see that? This is that you would truly know the Father. Now, to know, it's not just intellectual knowledge like, well, I know some facts about God. Hmm, That's pretty interesting. It's to know not just the truth about him, but to know him personally, experientially. And it's a growing knowledge. But I want you to know that this whole idea that Jesus is the only way, like he said, and Jesus said in John 14, 6, that flies in the face of religious pluralism, which basically says, well, all religions have something to offer. Uh, all religions are true to some extent, or, some extent or, or have some truth. And so we are pretty comfortable with this. And you can kind of believe in God however you want, and you can pick and choose, and you can fashion your own religion. You want to add to it? You want to let rituals? How about some more incense? You want candles? Whatever you want. You can have God in any shape, way, or form. There are all these major religions. And who are you to say that there's just one way? No, 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 no. As long as you're willing to say there's all sorts of different paths to God, and let's just get along and move forward and just be happy and respect the idea that there's just lots of different ways. I want you to know that doesn't work when it comes to the one true God. He says, I'm it. And I want people to truly know me. And I have made this possible because I have given you my son. And yet, this whole exclusive claim that Jesus Christ is the only way to truly know the Father, I want you to know it flies in the face of our culture. So, for instance, I'll give you some folks. Um, Rabbi Shumuli Botiak. You'll see him, like, on TV. He's hugging people. And he's got these kind of radical statements. One of which, let me give you this quote. I am absolutely against any religion that says one faith is superior to another. I don't see how that is anything different from spiritual racism. Or Mahatma Gandhi, he said this, quote, My position is that all great religions are fundamentally equal. Or let me give you a great spiritual authority here in the United States, none other than Oprah Winfrey. And, and you're laughing, but I want you to know she's very influential. Oprah speaks, people like, ah, I will believe that. Let me give you something. And she says things like this pretty regularly. Quote, one of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there's only one way. Actually, there are many diverse paths leading to God. And what happens, friends, is uh, if you declare that Jesus is the only way, it's going against the very premise that all religions have something good to offer. And God wants you to know the truth If you do not trust in Christ and you don't see that God has actually given the gift of his people to the son who he redeems, you're still walking in darkness and blindness. And none of this makes sense. So guess what you do? You have to redefine Christmas. 
And you're going to make it about food and fun and games and hopefully you might get a decent gift, but not about really knowing Christ. And yet that's exactly what God wants. He wants us to know him, that you may know him. And like, I just have a question for you. Do you really want to grow in knowing him? I mean, we're just about ready to get into all the fanfare and the frenetic pace of the Christmas season. And it's easy to get focused on your white elephant gifts and the food that you're going to be eating and how much weight you're going to be gaining and, the, and just the right parties and all that decorations and stuff and, and the music. And there's nothing wrong with all that. But I just have a question. Do you really want to know him? You see, that's at the very heart of Christmas. Paul got it. Before he was all caught up in a bunch of religion, right? And rituals and trying to keep perfect and do the law, etc. But he writes about that in Philippians chapter 3, but he keeps going. By the time he gets to verse 10, though, he says this. What I'd really like to do is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. To know him, not just know facts about God, but to know him experientially. To have a new spiritual sense where the truth of the word fuels your faith and it leads to worship and awe and wonder and a desire to walk in his ways. God desires that we would know him. You see, Christmas celebrates the eternal glory of God who gives eternal life in his son. And like, I know this from firsthand experience. Prior to knowing Jesus, Christmas was really all about how much fun you could have, hopefully you get the right gift, eating way too much food and like cookies and candy, right? That was, that was what Christmas was about. So yeah, I was familiar, Jesus born, but that really was like, that was kind of like superfluous, right? That was until I actually placed my faith in Jesus at the end of my freshman year in college. And then six months later, when I came to my first Christmas as a Christian, I want you to know Jesus took on a whole new significance All the other things became like secondary. But the fact that this one actually is my savior who came to rescue me. And the more I kept learning, the more you find yourself in awe and joy and in love with Jesus. And that's what Christmas is intended to do. And by the way, do you remember what the angel told Joseph? Remember Joseph was like, you know what? I've got to divorce Mary. Somehow we're engaged and she's with child and I have nothing to do with it. I, gotta get, I, I just got to end this, right? Remember that? And an angel appeared to Joseph. You read about this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the, by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means what? God with us. You see, the purpose of the coming of Christ is to bring God great glory by giving eternal life to his own. To know him forever, to know his forgiveness, to realize that you will spend eternity basking in his glory and rejoicing in his grace. There's one other thing I want to point out to you from this text that we learn about the the true purpose of the coming of Christ, and that is to bring God great glory by accomplishing all the work the Son has been given. Take a look. After he talks about what eternal life is, about to know the Father and Jesus Christ, who he was sent, 
He says this, verse 4, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. So he says, I have glorified you on the earth. To bring God glory is to magnify his character, his nature, his excellencies, and to do it with your words and your actions. And he says, Jesus says, I accomplished the work that you gave me, and I did it on the earth, in this world. Do you see that? On the earth. This earth, the people that are living in rebellion against God, this earth that is cursed, Jesus says, I actually accomplished all of your work on the earth. Not, not in heaven, but in a, but in a sin-twisted world where you have adversity, coldness, hardness of heart, all sorts of corruption, religious gimmicks, and you have people that are deep in their depravity. It's on the earth, Jesus says, that I've accomplished your work. And you're like, well, what, what is the work that the Son of God was given to do? And I just jotted down some things to highlight. What is the work? Well, first thing he did, well, he fulfilled all the law's righteous demands. When Jesus came, he didn't say, you know, the Old Testament, we don't have to do that anymore. Just, just forget about that. Um, we're, I'm going to start something new. No? Like it says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law of prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus says, I came to fulfill all of them. And it's on the basis that he actually fulfills the law, which makes him perfectly righteous, that he actually can give his righteousness to those who believe, those who are sinful, those who are not righteous. He gives them their righteousness. Let me give you some other work that Jesus did. He fulfilled the prophecies regarding the Messiah. He manifested deity in human form. You want to know, what does God look like? Look at Jesus. He modeled a life of devotion to the Father. He ministered to the needs of humanity. Let me give you just a couple other aspects of the work of God. He was maturing his followers. He did so through his words, his actions, his assignments, his teaching and training. When you look at Jesus in the Gospels, it's not like Jesus just is randomly like, well, a miracle here, got a sermon going on over here, send my disciples to do this. I want you to know everything was done with great intentionality. It was to mature them because he was also going to multiply his ministry through his disciples, and he was going to use some of them or their close associates to actually write out the New Testament to write out the final books of Scripture. And then finally, the work that he was given was to secure salvation for those who trust in him through his life, death, and resurrection. And Jesus did it on the earth. And so he says, on this basis, I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Then he says this, verse 5, Now, Father, Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Here he's praying and saying, that same glory that we shared in, this love, the manifestation of expressing and living out this love and putting all God's character on display that we did with each other, I want to now return to that glory. His incarnation was this great descent. It was this coming down. It was becoming a man. Now he's saying, I want to return to the glory that we shared. That is Christmas from God's perspective. We're now Jesus. In fact, he speaks of it as if it's already done because the time is near. The hour is here. I want to return to that glory. But that doesn't mean that he sheds humanity. 
Do you know that Jesus has eternally taken on a human form, that he is the God-man, that even today there is reigning Jesus, but he is in a glorified state. He is eternally God, but he is now also truly human. Today in heaven, you could actually see Jesus with nail-pierced hands and a side that has been lanced with a spear. He has done that to continually display the glory and the love of God. Friends, that's Christmas from God's perspective. And, you know, it's like he's praying now for the reverse of the kenosis. There was the emptying. Now I want to return to the glory that we shared. You could almost think of it as like homesickness, to go back to where he came from, to experience the glory that he lived with. And so he was born in Bethlehem, six miles from Bethlehem. He would die and be crucified. But then three days later, he would rise again. And shortly after that, he would do just as he's praying. He would ascend. And it's this great, like, coronation. I mean, Jesus didn't depart in humiliation. He departed in glory. In fact, if you want to see the coronation of the king and who Jesus is, remember that Philippians 2 text? What tells us in verses 9 through 11? For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see that? God is glorified when Jesus is seen, worshiped, and understood for who he is. And I want you to know that non-believers and believers are going to see Jesus as he really is. We just have the privilege in this lifetime to worship him with everything we've got. And friends, this is a clear understanding of what Christmas is all about. If you want to like, well, what, is, what, what does Jesus actually look like? Well, there is one description. You can find it in the book of Revelation, chapter 1. If you want to know, like, well, what, is, what does Jesus look like now? Well, John actually records. In fact, his appearance is so stunning that John himself, who knew Jesus well, he falls at his feet like a dead man. But Jesus raises him up and tells him, you do not need to be afraid, right? I love you. You are my friend. But frankly, our problem is we have too small of a view of God and God the Son. He is the almighty, reigning, eternal, everlasting one. And when you get a glimpse of the greatness and glory of God, do you know what it'll do? It will transform everything you do. This Christmas... That is my prayer, that you and I would get a glimpse of the greatness and the glory of God. And when we do, it'll start transforming like how you and I worship. It won't be like, oh, I'll come and I might sing a song or two. I might get into it a little bit, but I'm not sure. You know, no. The more you really see Jesus for who he is, the more it evokes worship, both corporately and as you go throughout the week, you're exalting the living God. You're bringing him glory. And by the way, if you're in a habit of communing with God and worshiping him during the sunny times, when your heart is breaking and life is tough, guess what? You're going to find it much easier to worship him. And please do not confuse knowledge with worship. Just like you're like seeing this in John 17, like, wow, you know, I've never seen that before. I didn't understand that. That's great. That's great. 
That's not worship. That's knowledge. But knowledge is meant to be translated to exaltation. So let these truths grip your heart in such a way that you truly praise Jesus and praise God from the heart. Let me tell you something else about when you get a glimpse of the greatness and glory of God, it'll transform your obedience. You'll find this. The degree you're willing to serve Jesus is the degree that you actually see him for who he really is. So if you find like, you know, not really interested in serving the Lord, rarely even think about that. I, I see ministry opportunities at work, at the church. I generally take a pass. Let me guess. You don't have a great perspective on who Jesus really is. Because you're going to find that folks are like, man, I, I want to serve Jesus. Yeah, it's going to be hard. It's going to take some guts. God will give me the spirit. I'm going to trust him. But people who serve Jesus in rather significant and great ways, whether in their financial giving, um, in their living, in serving others, being involved in ministry, it's because they actually have a pretty good and healthy understanding of who Jesus really is. I want you to know getting a glimpse of the greatness and glory of God will also transform your confidence. You're going to have like a, a boldness that comes. I mean, friends, let's be realistic we are really starting to go against the grain of culture. There is going to be all sorts of efforts to silence Christians. And two things are going to happen. There are going to be plenty of folks like, oh, okay, man, um, man, being politically correct is the most important thing to me, man. Uh, and so some folks are just going to capitulate that way. The other thing that's taking place is the erosion of the Christian faith to like, hey, man, some of the things in the Bible that are written here, uh, uh, uh. that's not going to work in our culture. So you know what? We're going to need to explain things away. We're going to come up with different interpretations or we just, we're just going to always jump over this. And the church, and it's happening. It happens every single week. But God always has a remnant. God always has his people who are going to follow him and, and will move forward by faith and he will give you courage to do so. And you're like, where am I going to find guts like that? You find it by getting a glimpse of his glory. And you see him on the pages of scripture, like this text we're looking at. And then one other thing I want to say is that when you get a glimpse of who Jesus is, his goodness, his glory, and the greatness of God, it'll transform your perspective. All of a sudden, you're going to start seeing things from an eternal perspective. Not just the here and now, and that is important, but an eternal perspective. You're going to be able to discern like what's of great value and what's you know pretty trivial. Like, uh, I was reading uh, a guy by the name of Leighton Ford, and his son went on a short-term mission trip to Spain, and he ended up dying there at age 21. The guy that was overseeing the mission there, uh, he wrote a letter to Leighton, and in part, he wrote this. He writes of his son, he says, you know, quote, I was stunned, 21, so many gifts to use. I thought, what a waste. But then he wrote, Leighton, I realize we are so earthbound. Sandy, which was his son's name, Sandy's highest service has only begun. Who thinks like that? God's people do. They have an eternal perspective. Life is far more than the here and now. Life is about eternity. So friends, this Christmas season, look to Jesus. If you want to know what humility looks like, just, just look at Jesus. If you want to know what does, what does it look like to really be human in its fullest sense, look to Jesus. 
If you want to know what does love really look like, why just simply look at the Savior, look to Jesus. And what you want to do is you want to come to a point where you're not just a spectator in life, but you see Jesus as the central character and how he's using you and all of his people for the furthering his work and the furthering of his glory. But if you want to see Christmas from from God's perspective, know know this. It's all about the greatness of the glory of God. So you remember that familiar text where the angels appear to the shepherds? And we rightfully read it and study it every Christmas. But now in light of seeing Christmas from God's perspective, listen to these words. An angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared... With the angel, a great multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, listen to what they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. Friends, this is Christmas from God's perspective. You see, Christmas celebrates the eternal glory of God who gives eternal life in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this amazing prayer that's recorded in full and that we can actually see what you have accomplished and are continuing to do through your son. So, Father, if there is someone here this morning who has never truly trusted in your son, Jesus, would they pray with me now and say, God, I see Jesus for who he really is now. I I see my sin. There is brokenness. And God, I need your forgiveness and I need your life and I really need your love. And so, Lord, would you forgive me and I'm trusting in you. And Lord, for all of us who do really know you, Lord, may we have just an insatiable desire to know your goodness, to walk in your ways, to know you intimately, deeply, and personally. For Lord, it is in Jesus and Jesus alone that we have the reality of genuine relationship with you And our tongues are loose because our heart has been filled with the goodness of your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.